we created a mascot called Tidy, who uh, becomes happier the more space there is on your phone. Tidy became a big, big hit. And yeah, a lot of people use our app now. We have over 300 million users, I believe, across the world. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. All right. I'm super excited about this episode because I've been nagging Samir for a very long time and he's a super busy guy, but we finally got him on the show and uh, it's been many years since we've worked together. But I'd like to welcome Sumir Falke, Head of Design at Next Billion Users at Google. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Beck. It's really nice to be here, finally. Finally. <laughs> so what does that even mean, Next Billion Users? Right. So Next Billion Users refers to people who are coming online for the very first time to the internet. So... These are folks who live in countries like India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Nigeria. And so, and there's a lot more countries, obviously. These are folks who have not had access to the internet before. And so they're finally getting access to connectivity and are being able to experience the internet for the very first time. Now, having said that, there, there's also a very different kind of contexts in which they're coming online. So they have you know, different constraints. For example, the cost of connectivity might be quite high where they are. Available infrastructure is different. Of course, like there's differences in language, literacy. So there's different use cases and needs. And so that's really what it, why it's a bit different when it comes to designing for the next pictures. That's really the focus of, of our team. Got it. What are some of the, give us some examples of, of your work uh, and, and products that you do that, that really helps make it spell out what, what it means to design for, for this new batch of users? Yeah, so yeah, happy to uh, talk about some of our products. So one of the products that, that our team worked on is called Files by Google. It's a file manager that allows people to free up space on their phones, manage files, and consume files on smartphones. This is an Android app. And Files was really driven by this insight that we uncovered while doing foundational research in Brazil, where we saw folks in Brazil and also in India, folks with entry-level mobile devices were, they were basically running out of space. You know, So you, you download a few apps, you take a few photos, and then your phone runs out of space. And then your phone becomes really hard to use because it just slows down, right? And this is one of those situations where a smartphone is probably your only computing device and you, you're reliant on it. It's fairly expensive and you can't just be like, I'm going to go upgrade, right? So typically in these situations where you don't really know why your device is not working well, we see that a lot of people go to their local phone shop local convenience store and they ask for help and what we saw was that these local shops would basically you know take some money and then either turn the phone off and keep it next to nac for a while <laughs> and then turn it back on and give it to give it to them and then of course when your phone's cooled down it performs faster for for a little while and then it slows down again or they do something like a factory reset which is 
which is wipes everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wipes everything. You, know, you lose your contacts, you lose your chats, you lose everything. That's that's a really harsh reality. So, um, these are really not great solutions, right? To that problem, which is, hey, I can't really use this one device that I have. And so, and and modern smart uh, smartphone operating have done such a great job of kind of obfuscating like the complexity of file systems away from users, right? So. You don't really know why things are where things are taking up space, why they're taking up space, and so on. And so, what we wanted to do was we wanted to help people manage their devices so that they could free up space. Like these are apps you haven't used in a long time, or these are photos that are some, or you know, here's some junk files, or like you know, crash cache files that we can clear up space and make your phone faster. And that, if you can imagine your phone, the life of your phone lasts six months longer, a year longer, that's money you've saved because now you don't have to buy a new device, right? And so that's really the insight that, and yeah, that gave, that became files. We created a mascot called Tidy, who uh, becomes happier the more space there is on your phone. Tidy became a big, big hit. And yeah, a lot of people use our app now. We have over 300 million users, I believe, uh, across the world. And we learned a lot designing that. We learned a lot about, um, you know, things like hygiene and how important it was for people to feel like they wanted to clean their phones. And just like, how do we educate people about how to keep their phone in good shape without making it super complex? And from there on, it's now become a file consumption tool and a file manager as well. That's one That's one of our products. Another product that we, we launched recently is called Camera Go. And Camera Go is is an app that tries to bring high-end computational photography, so really like high-quality photography, to entry-level devices. And with Camera Go, one of the challenges, so you can imagine there's a big technical challenge here, right? Like when you have an entry-level device, can you do the kind of HDR photography that you know we expect like some of our flagship phones today to do? So there's definitely that. We have this brilliant like, engineering team that's been able to like really. Uh, push how much we can accomplish from entry-level hardware. But from a UX standpoint, there's also a challenge of how do we how do we help people who are using cameras for the first time? So what we what we call new internet users to really understand how to do camera photography. So if you if you've never really used a camera, physical camera before or a camera app before, then you don't even know what a shutter button is. Right, mm. and it's very different. If you think about it, it's very different from any other app you've encountered on your on your phone. And you might be like, "What is this big round silver button doing?" Green. <laughs> what do I do with that? What does HDR mean? What does exposure mean? What do all of these terms mean? Right. I mean, this is really hard, even for for me sometimes. Like, I'm not a you know super savvy photographer. So, and I consider myself fairly a fairly tech savvy person. So understanding that, and then once you take that photo, where does it go? How do I access that? I mean, we know that there's a separate app that has all these, you know, has gallery photos, but for someone who's new to the internet and using a camera for the first time, where did my photo go? How do I access it? So helping our users who are new to the internet understand how to take photographs, and often our users are not necessarily English speakers, and sometimes not even, uh, if you look at the literacy spectrum, they may not be 
they may not have had a formal education. And so how do we then explain really complex concepts without necessarily relying on lots and lots of text? Right? And so those are some really interesting user experience challenges for us to solve. So yeah, we've released Camera Go as well, and it's been, it's been doing fairly well. Yeah. So I'd love to maybe hear some of the insights, right? What, what you're saying is a lot of these people, they don't, they don't even have the mental model, the paradigm of, of software or a, what a camera, like, like you can, you know, if I had a camera before, I know what a shutter, you know, what flash is, what all this stuff is. But if you've never had a camera, like all these things don't mean anything. And even in India, there's so many languages. So even just language is is a friction because which language you use can you give us some insights in terms of how you went about solving these problems and how you yeah what were the solutions for yeah yeah i mean these are I, i'm not i'm not going to say that we've solved we've nailed all of these right so this is definitely something that uh that we're we're learning about one of the things personally that i found really exciting as a designer was that Building for NBU and being on this team really forced me as a designer to go back to basics and really made me question what it meant, what intuition meant, you know? And so a lot of us designers design by what we call intuition, right? And then I had to really ask myself, what does that really mean? What is that intuition? And it's, it's, it's basically a bunch of assumptions, right? And a lot of those assumptions are based on what we know and have personally experienced. And a lot of times, especially early in our careers, we'll design things that are like, if I was the user, this is what I would want, right? And that's like, that's the that's what we put out there. With the NBU, I, I couldn't really make those assumptions because while I did grow up in it, I've lived long enough in the US now. And, you know, I, I my experience was one person's experience. It's it's not enough to to build intuition. So we had to really go back to doing a lot of foundational research. So one of the things that we do, we, we strongly rely on is doing a lot of foundational research with our users. And so we'll, we'll not just talk to them, we'll, we'll go when, when we were able to travel before the pandemic, of course, we would, we would actually go to people's homes. We would talk to them on the street. We do in-depth interviews and often design with, not just design for, but design with. We give them, we do diary studies, we'd invite them to design sessions. And that was really a great way to understand, you know, some of those mental models. We've published something. So we have a website, nextbillionusers.google. We published a bunch of research and insights that we found. One of them is around the pivotal role that informal teachers play. So not, not, not only is it important for us to make sure that we design education in the products that we're building, there's also often a reliance on family members and folks in the community. And so that was really like an interesting, interesting insight. So uh, Google Go, for example, which is a Google search app, has these learning videos. And these learning videos are, they, they teach you things like incognito mode or or what have you. And so not only is it something that you can watch a video and learn from, which is much inherently much more visual medium to you know tackle those challenges of like language and literacy. But also this is something you could imagine watching with an informal teacher and having them explain it as well. So that's another thing that we've learned to to rely on. Definitely the camera example, 
we rely on a lot of visual education so a lot of visual tooltips and animation motion helps a lot too i think you know in context education i think this is this is a pretty common learning not just for nbu but in context education is definitely much better but one challenge has definitely been that maybe different from you and me the confidence that we might feel when faced with a new app to explore by learn by exploration may not be there for some of our users who are new to the internet because there isn't that much digital confidence there's a fear almost of like breaking something or doing something wrong and if you think about it i've experienced this if i buy like a new piece of equipment that's very complex for me to understand i'll probably be naturally quite hesitant to maybe explore it too much because it's expensive i don't want to break it you know something it's like the same phone, yeah right like i think you you probably experienced this as well so so we realized that there is definitely some hesitancy so what we've done is we published a, a toolkit for designers uh, product designers product managers called the digital confidence toolkit also linked on our website we built this in partnership with ideo and the bill and melinda gates foundation and this is a series of prompts and tools for folks who are designing for an experienced users to think about their contexts and ways in which they can help increase the digital confidence of of people that they're designing for amazing well, going back to files it reminded me what what you were telling me reminded me of the early days of computers when you didn't have a lot of hard drive space and then you had yeah. for like pc tools that would defrag your computer to make it like oh things are slow now you got to defrag your computer okay yeah. and then i remember another program you know i think i had like 40 megabyte hard drive back in the day and yeah. uh, there was a tool that would zip your unused files like oh you didn't use these files very much so we just zip it and then it would if you needed to use it they would automatically unzip or something it sounds like that you, you can map some of those needs to the very early needs of the pc stuff pretty well <laughs> Yeah, you're not you're not wrong. And you know now we have uh hard drives are we don't run out of hard drive, hard drive space so much and then we right. we have we have cloud storage obviously. That is definitely one of those things that you can't take for granted in in EU countries because you may not have connectivity. You may be cost conscious and you may not want to be able to pay for a cloud subscription. So storage again becomes quite important. So you're right, it is it is kind of reminiscent of the early days of personal computing. So I think those the, those users have two problems though, right? You, you mentioned storage space but also internet also might cost money, right? They 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 often don't have unlimited internet plans and I think so how did you you know it sounds like files offload stuff by by putting it one by cleaning up your phone but also potentially moving stuff to the cloud but that also uses the internet obviously so what how did you strike that balance or yeah yeah files actually not we don't really move stuff to the cloud as yet because a lot of our users are not cloud subscribers so it's mostly around helping users identify apps that they are not using and asking to delete them or things like so good morning messages i don't know if you know what those are but especially in south asia there is this tradition of folks are on whatsapp groups and they will send mm-hmm. each other good morning messages which are usually kind of fo- jpegs with you know 
phrases on them good morning and good wishes to you and things like that you know your your relatives will send that to you and so you might get inundated with like dozens of these every day and then they just get stored on your phone so right actually help detect all of those and <laughs> clean this out in one fell swoop so there's definitely some kind of very contextual you know features in there that are very relevant to some of the markets that we that we work in the other thing that another piece of research that we've published and you know we spent quite a while doing research on is about uh, understanding trying to understand whether the internet is equitable from a from a gender perspective and what our research says is that it's it's not and that there there are fewer women online than than men in in two thirds of the country worldwide and so there's a there's a bunch of concerns that that women have you know there's is access to technology there's privacy there's security and then there's there's content i believe uh those are the four and and we've often seen in a lot of countries women don't have access to technology as much as men do and sometimes they will their usage is often monitored by folks in their lives or their by the family there's also an expectation for for women sometimes to be the child child caregivers and so an extension of that is when your kids come home from school they're probably going to use your device to play games on or watch watch videos on and so the expectation of sharing your device is also often falls on women and then that impacts things like privacy and so you know there might be medical records or there might be photos that you may not want folks to see and so there isn't really like a, a safe space to to keep that we've heard from we've heard from women where they they they're like oh i watched a youtube video and i'm not quite sure that you know my brother or my parents would be okay with that so i then search for five or six other youtube videos that were that they would be okay with to kind of push the push it down browser history testing exactly exactly right and then because you can't clear browser history having a zero right. browser history is also suspicious so you know those are some of those those kind of interesting insights so in files we actually built a feature called safe folder which allows people to take sensitive files you know documents or or photos or what have you and put them in a folder and then have it pin protected so this would be a different pin from your from your phone pin and that just allows you know folks who are using shared devices to have more privacy yeah so that was something that was a direct outcome of some of the insights from our research yeah i can I experienced either personally or can relate to all these stories you're sharing. I I was added to a, a South, a very heavily South Asian WhatsApp group, and I, I experienced some of that. And like people just like you said, they just throw all these images and like and it, and with WhatsApp, they just add them automatically added to your phone. So like every time I open my photos and photos app, like I I'm always surprised about them. <laughs> by the number of photos that just appeared into my phone almost without my permission <laughs> sometimes yeah, inappropriate and then my wife is like hey why did you have this photo like i just, i swear it's people were sharing it on this whatsapp group and then it just appeared and then it's just downloaded on my phone and then my sister you know she's got kids and of course you know like you said she there's that expectation that you know you're the the woman the mom is just sharing the phone you know for for games and and you're right there's not uh, as far as i know there's really not a great experience to have 
you know, this notion of profiles or whatever, right. Or some, some sort of kid mode or safe mode, whether it's, you know, your competitor's phones or Google phones, right. It's not, not a great experience. Yeah. And something like, even if you did have profiles, it's such a, such a complex thing to set up, right? Yeah. I don't know how many people actually would go through the process of setting up different profiles and switching profiles and why do you need a different profile? You know, like all of these. So it is just a different context uh, that we have to design for because a lot of of times women do want to be in those roles. Like they do want to fulfill those kind of cultural expectations, right? And we're not definitely not here to suggest otherwise, but we do want to support them while they're fulfilling those, those, you know, expectations. Let's switch over to talking about your career a little bit. So yeah. you and I have this in common. We we actually did not study design. We we until later. You have a computer engineering degree. What interested you in in design? That is a great question. I got my first computer. My dad bought me a Sinclair ZX Spectrum when I was I believe 5 or 6 years old. I don't think a lot of folks in the US know about that. I guess the closest equivalent was like a Commodore. It was basically a, a keyboard that you hook up to your TV and you can program in basic with. And then you could also load and play games on with a tape recorder. And that was my first introduction to computing. So I've, I've always had like a love for computing and a love for gaming too. Like I'm a lifelong gamer. And so I was just fascinated by the medium. And at the time, there was really no other way to ex- to experience kind of interactive narrative driven you know stories so i really love that part of it too and so i spent so much time with computers just naturally i was like this is what i want to do you know and then of course i think growing up in and maybe you maybe you can relate but growing up in in south asia there was always an expectation that you're going to be a, a doctor lawyer engineer it's kind of like <laughs> right doctor lawyer engineer and so start, i started studying computer science or computer engineering and that was around the time that that the internet became a thing. And there was a lot of like fun exploration of what websites could look like. You know, there was wacky stuff on GeoCities. And there was, you know, there was just like Photoshop was kind of interesting. It had only like, I remember the old version of Photoshop, you could only undo once, which was also kind of like a weird complaint. But I started playing with motion design and I got involved, interested in doing Flash and uh, started action scripting. And I really loved that process. And then I started doing side gigs. So uh, a lot of universities and colleges would have college festivals. Uh, it's kind of almost like big conventions. And I started doing kind of websites for them. This is a hobby. I started like doing fun design work in Photoshop and Flash and bringing those to life. And I realized that I really enjoyed doing that work. So I kind of started already spanning, branching out from from programming and doing more design work. And by the end of my undergrad, I realized that I really wanted to study this intersection of like design and and computing more than just like full on software engineering. And I started looking for ways to study that. And at that point, I wasn't even aware of any programs in India that could do that. And so I, I was, Lucky enough to be able to apply to a few colleges in the U.S. And Georgia Tech had this interesting program called, back then it was called Information Design and Technology. It's now, I think, I believe it's called Digital Media now. And yeah, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia when I was 22 to go to grad school. 
and it was it was wild it was there was no user there was no such thing as user experience back then uh it was a, a bunch of folks from very different backgrounds we had filmmakers and writers and computer programmers and designers and artists and it's all of us in one group we were all trying to figure out what to do experimenting with everything from wearable technology to you know interactive storytelling to filmmaking game design so i got a lot of my kind of exposure to design to that program and that's how i came into came into it i still didn't know what i wanted to do after i graduated but then the the realities of needing a job and needing a you know visa <laughs> really hit me back then and there was a there was a consulting job at IBM that was focused on the color information architect which is basically UX back then and yeah i decided to do that and i realized i loved it i just loved kind of solving problems and jumping into another world my very first project was for sony pictures and i was working with blu-ray discs and i thought it was fascinating just like the process of authoring blu-ray discs from movies was amazing so you designed and, the menus and kind of like the whole experience cuz blu-ray discs had more loaded multimedia we were on a project that was helping design a system that would help them author um, of uh, the video so multiplex and add audio and then create the menu so it was like it was kind of like photoshop because it had all these graphic editing things to it Got but it. also like a whole video editing suite so it was quite a big workflow and i i was just like fascinated by that whole thing i had like yeah. 200 page requirements document on my desk and i just like you know and that's kind of when i was like okay if i'm really enjoying this then this this must be something that that you know i should keep doing and yeah like 15 years later here i am how did you get the the job at google so the job at google was also interesting i was at ibm for a while working at their agency and had worked with a lot of really interesting clients everything from the grand slam tennis tournaments to the chicago tribune sony or e-commerce it was it was great every new business you work for you almost have to learn what that means what the business how the business works right so it was great there was an opportunity to contract at google for a team that was doing tools for googlers internal tools and to me that was quite fascinating because uh, i wanted to understand what it meant to work in house i hadn't had that experience yet in my career and and so i applied there was a bunch of interviews and i did the whole like up you know up in the air thing where i lived in atlanta and i flew to sf every week for almost nearly 2 years and worked on a bunch of internal google products but but loved it you know one of the luxuries you have when you have a well funded in house operation is that you can invest in research and you are you can launch something and then continue to work on it and make it better right and i think sometimes what happens with the and obviously i'm not speaking for all agencies but sometimes within in the agency environment you build something and then it goes to a client and then you may or may not get to see it built you may not get to see how it performs you may not get to keep making it better so i love that experience of being that embedded and having stakeholders that were my colleagues instead of a client and i love that a lot and then i applied i wanted to and i wanted to i mean working for google was a dream so at that time i applied and i and yeah i've been at google for about 
seven years, ten years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think we worked together a couple of years after I joined. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was a contract designer doing IoT stuff for Google. That's how we met. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was. I don't think you were at Next Billion Users then. So. No, right after that, about twenty fifteen. Yeah. So I've been at Next Billion Users for about six years. You know, it's something really drew me to it. So I'd always been really interested in uh, applying user experience to kind of inclusive design and to like areas where maybe UX wasn't that commonly used. So to make it to kind of be more clear over the course of my time at IBM, I worked a lot in their corporate outreach program. And so worked with a lot of nonprofits and uh, consulting with them and helping them with kind of their user experience and their their service design and kind of, you know, site designs, UX design. And one of the things that was really apparent to me was that, at least back then, a lot of nonprofits did not prioritize or have the funding to invest in design. But a lot of their problems could be solved by connecting what they do. Very passionate people know, know a lot about almost like subject matter experts in the space that they work in with the recipients of their services and their donors and their volunteers. There was a disconnect between between them. And UX could really help solve some of those problems, right? Because you might have like really smart people and know exactly what to solve for, but if your end user is unable to like make sense of it, if it's not accessible for them, if it's not useful for them, then it it it's a big hurdle for them to actually get the benefit of those services. And so I was really fascinated by how UX could kind of mediate that. And uh, at the NBU in the NBU team, I I saw kind of a similar opportunity, you know, because for a lot of our users in NBU, you know, Google's Google's mission is to make the world's information, you know, categorize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, right? So, how can you? How is it possible to access? information if you, for example, if you live in India and it's very hard for you to formulate and write a, a query because Indic keyboards can, the layout is quite complex. So it takes, I don't know, I think it takes something like three times longer to type than in English, right? So, or what happens if you are um, not literate enough to be able to type out, you know, so how is that accessible, right? Or if the most of the most of the world's internet is it feels like it's not built for for the next billion users even though most of the users online are going to be from the next next billion country markets the 70% i think something like 70% of the internet is in english yeah but most new internet users are not english language speakers right so how is then that information going to be useful for for folks so i thought it was very interesting for for us to be able to kind of work in that space, to be able to help people who are coming online for the first time be able to feel like the internet was built for them. And so that that's kind of what really drew me to, to this team. Yeah, I, I every time I travel back to Thailand, I get so many insights into how different people use software or the internet or applications. One, one thing I observed, for example, like cab drivers, the way they use chat applications like uh, and it seems to be a pattern like, it wasn't like one single person doing this was they they use voice just like you said right like 
you know, non-English keyboards, for example, like it's like the Thai alphabet, there's 44 consonants and like 18 vowels. So it's just like much more dense, right? Like it's so much harder to type on it. So it's just imagine typing while you're driving that that's not even a non-starter for for like a thai language keyboard so people would they'd record audio and they'd talk so it'd be like a a recorded audio message and that's how their people were chatting back and forth in you know just that that was like one observation that i had while you know just like sitting in the back of the car of of a grab not not uber but a grab vehicle and and people that's like how people were chatting as they were, they were, yeah yeah they're just ch- record like re- recorded audio so that was like a very insightful it's like oh that's interesting I, do you like, do that uh, now i i've started using voice messaging more often too yes. now that my friends have started using it and i kind of enjoy it well what we're, i'm seeing now is the use of video in in slack because mm-hmm. you know so much context is lost when you do typing and then you know like you have a text message it's like people people get triggered or we we might inadvertently offend each other but like you know so we just like do video now so that's 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 interesting audio messages i i still don't see a lot of but my wife has like she'll do that sometimes when she's driving that's time to type or text so you know i still do like just text to audio to text that that seems to be i don't know my old i'm like that old guy who's got habits so i don't have a <laughs> i hear you i, I mean I, I you know one of the things that is really fascinating is how big an opportunity voice to your point how big an opportunity voice is in next big news of countries and how it is great to be able to use voice to formulate queries but to also use audio to hear content translated back to you yeah. and that's such a unexplored opportunity and for me, even though I have some smart home devices, I will rarely ever ask questions to it. It mostly is like, what's the weather, you know, <laughs> or like yeah. set a timer. But I, I know there's a lot of people who use them all the time. And I and I think that's great. It's just that I, like you said, I'm a creature of habit and I just like default to typing things out. Yeah, yeah. Like, like my wife who got on the internet much later than me, because like you and I, you know, we grew up with computers very early on. We, so we, we, we're native to typing. So she'll yeah. always, a lot of times, ask the your phone and, and, and query like in audio. So that's so interesting. And then to your point, like, I, you know, with, I, I can, now that with COVID, you're home all the time, I, I consume smart TVs more and YouTube, yeah. you know, like I, I consume YouTube on the TV much more now than I ever in my life. And I have two TVs. One is older and doesn't have audio. And it's so annoying to, to type, you know, the, the a remote interface is not the best interface to input long queries, you, you know, with up, down arrow keys with the enter button. Oh, confirm. Oh, it takes forever. Then the other TV, you know, it's got the Google Voice, so you know, I, I can I, yeah. that I use queries a lot audio because it's so hard to type anything in. It occurs to me that at some point, not not so far in the dis- in the future, um, I'm probably going to be one of those people that the children in my life will make fun of for not, not being 
up to date on the newest technology or <laughs> using it in the way that they do. It's certainly like one of those things doing this, doing the, this, the kind of work we're doing has made me empathize a lot more and helped me even empathize more with, with my parents. So, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but if you've had, you know, your parents or, or folks in your life who've asked you for tech support, there's definitely times when you can be impatient, right? <laughs> Why don't you get this? But, you know, I'm doing a lot of foundational research, doing a lot of research and understanding where the experiences people have. One of the worst feelings as a designer is when people use technology that's been designed and then they use it, they feel like they're doing something wrong, that they're not capable. Like I'll I'll tell you a story. We were doing connectivity research and we, were, we asked this older gentleman to try to connect to Wi-Fi and he was not confident at all about, about it. He said, oh, I think you need to get a password from the station master. And we were like, oh, I'll just try anyway. It was, you know, it was a public internet and he tried and it was just really hard, right? Like going to a captive portal and you have to do this thing called OTP where you put your phone number and you get a code, and, you know, all of that. And he struggled so much with it. And so then, you know, after we observed him for a while, we showed him how to get online and he, he was in tears. He, he I gave me a hug and he said, only my daughter could have taught me how to do this. And now you've taught me how to do this. And I just, you know, I, it was a very emotional moment even for me, but it also like drove home this point that you can, like, you know, I hate that when people feel like, oh, I am not good enough or smart enough to use this, when actually we should be the ones who should be making sure that the technology is accessible to everyone, you know? And so kind of the the internet is becoming more and more representative of, of all of humanity. And I think it's our job to make sure that it's inclusive so that everyone can Music. Absolutely. My my parents are not digital natives and and they struggle to use, you know, like tablet devices, phone, phone, smartphones and applications. And and I, I see their struggle and I, I've helped them. And sometimes it's like it's it's hard to try to teach them over the you know the internet when they're having problems with the internet. So it's I understand that that challenge and, and I'm very empathetic kind of the older generation or people who are not tech native or digital native to as they struggle like it's like oh why do i have to create an account i thought i had an account and it's like well this is a different app like it's like you know and the difference is like well and uh, you know just like doing facetime or or like you know in thailand it's line or or whatever you know it's it is a challenge and i've i've been kind of on that and then with my in-laws i feel like you know you might you might be able to empathize every time I went to their house at some point, it's like, Oh, I have this problem. I'm like their, their IT guy, right? Like they have a problem with the computer and, and usually it's, you know, cleaning, like, you know, kind of like cleaning, you know, hygiene. This is the same yeah. thing, like hygiene with your desktop. It's like, what have you been downloading? Why are all there's, why are there so many tabs on your <laughs> like toolbars, like toolbars on, on, on their, in your browsers? Uh, yeah, all the time. So I, I totally feel you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a great conversation, Samir. I, I really appreciate your time and it's been it's a long overdue catch up and conversation. Yeah, thanks, Beck. It was great to be here.
Yeah. So if anyone's interested in learning more, I think the, the site is nextbillionusers.google.com.google actually, not even.com. So nextbillionusers.google. And are there any opportunities for designers who are interested in working with you guys? Yeah, I mean, reach out to me. I don't know right now what opportunities there are, but we're always on the lookout for folks who are really passionate about this space. So feel free to reach out. And in the meantime, um, like you said, nextbillionusers.google has information about our products if you're interested in the products that we work on, but also a lot of resources and research. If you're interested in designing wherever you are for the next billion users, there's great resources for you there. Yeah, yeah. There's a section called, called research right there and, and tools yep. as well. So thank you again, Samir, and we'll link to those resources in the show notes. Thank you, Peck. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.